Welcome to Strange Bedfellows Podcast, where no question is too dark, no topic too taboo. Join us to explore sexuality, self-help, and politics with our expert guests and friends. We believe that sexual rights are human rights and that we can all create a brighter world through education and conversation. I am a parent, I am a certified holistic sex educator, I am a longtime sex worker and adult industry entertainer. My name is Elle Stanger and I'm a host of Strange Bedfellows Podcast. My name's John. You might know me as the audio engineer and editor of last season's podcast. I'm now returning as a co-host for season two. I'm a 22-year-old gay man and activist who will share my perspective in the coming season. Join us while we explore and uncover the things that make us squirm, make us shiver, make us tingle in delight. Because sex and politics can make for some very strange bedfellows. Welcome to Strange Bedfellows Podcast. My name is Elle Stanger. I am one of your hosts of this self-help and sex and politics podcast. Find us on Instagram, Strange Bedfellows PDX. Our website is the same name. Follow us on Patreon for bonus stuff. Hello, John. Hello. How are you? Good. I'm so ready to ask so many questions of our first guest. We have Dr. Eveline Dacker. Hi. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Dacker is owner of Vita Integrative Clinic in Salem, Oregon. She's a creator of a consent and boundaries guide to a conversation called STARS, uh, which teaches turn-ons, avoids, all kinds of things, conversations you want to have with your partner. And she also teaches medical providers how to model consent and about sex positivity. Dr. Dacker is also CEO of Sex Positive Portland. So to find more, go to evelinedacker.com. It's E-V-E-L-I-N-D-A-C-K-E-R. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Let's jump right into it. Um, So we're going to do a few more listener questions than we usually do because you have such a great area of expertise around so many questions that we get. And I'm like, hmm, I wish I was a doctor. Ooh, we can ask one. (laughs) Um, On your Facebook recently, so you said that you'd been changing some of the policies at your clinic recently. Mm -hmm. And one of those was asking staff to wear name tags, stating their pronouns. Mm Mm-hmm. So can you tell me anything about that? What was the motivation for change, firstly? First of all, I really encourage having an occlu- inclusive and affirming medical practice. And I, when I say inclusive and affirming, I, I mean for all humans, regardless of their orientation, their gender, their relationships, their sexual preferences, And so to do that, I feel like we have to make change in our language. And by including pronouns from the get-go, it just signals that we see everybody as a human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I decided that, you know what, when we actually introduce ourselves, we should just say, the way I introduce myself to new patients is, hi, I'm Dr. Evelyn Dacker, I use she, her. And then I sit down and I go into the rest of my conversation with people. Hmm. If somebody was to ask me, oh, why did you say what I was like just a better you know how do you how do I identify me and use language around me but honestly I've yet to have one patient ask me why (laughs) so that rules 
Yeah. Awesome. In fact, I've only had, you know, when I've, since I've started doing it, I've had several patients say, thank you. Mm-hmm. And that was, and these are, you know, cis uh, people. And yet just having that openness really is reaffirming for everybody. Yeah. It just makes it feel like a safer space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I didn't ask that actually when we started this episode. So I didn't even ask that when you came into my house, it did occur to me though. I said, I haven't asked, what are your, what are you going by? What are your pronouns? She, she her. her. Yes. I go by okay. she, her. Yeah. And, um, I do she, her, they, cause mm-hmm. I feel like they in general, we could all use collectively. Absolutely. And, you know, I really wish that we could move from a cultural construct of non, you know, move away from the binary cultural construct, because I think that it really shames and hurts a lot of us. Mm -hmm. We all are a mixture of masculine and feminine energies. And I think if we were able to be in a more non-binary culture, then we would both be able to express it, uh, whoever you are and however you identify. So that's really important to me. And having that uh, have people thinking about that a little bit more mm-hmm. john you identify as uh he him but uh i wouldn't be opposed enough that i've heard that to to they yeah would also work as well for me yeah Not a problem cool um so was there any pushback at all <laughs> yes there was so <laughs> first let me uh, first let me explain that my practice is in salem oregon and salem is a very republican christian government town it's the state capital and it's a great place to raise families. It's sweet. It's but what we have is a lot of Republicans and a lot of jails. Mm-hmm. There's so, a lot of poverty and there's a lot of meth mm-hmm. in Salem. Yeah, and my patient population really isn't in the more poverty. It's very middle class, if not upper middle class, um, because it is a private practice and it's integrative and holistic. So that tends to mm-hmm. attract a certain patient population. But still, I have to say that a majority of my patients are very conservative or Christian or monogamous. And it's very easy for all of the providers in my practice to make that assumption about our patients. Yeah, And so... I did get pushback. They felt very uncomfortable. My my providers and my staff felt very uncomfortable about it. They're like, but what are we going to say when people ask us why we're saying that? They, you know, I they have yet to see the reason for this inclusivity. And so, you know, it's about modeling. I figure if I model it and me and my my provide my medical assistant wear the name tags, you, she, her, it normalizes it for everybody so that slowly people could feel a little bit more safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. awesome. I wish that there was like, um, you know what? There might be if you know of one, if you know of a short video and I'm sure like BuzzFeed or College Humor, mm. someone's done one of those, but like a short little video that's like, why to offer gender mm. pronoun options? Mm-hmm. You know, send it mm-hmm. to us. I want to see it. Uh, Pillow Talk at strangebedfellowspdx.com. Um, I've noticed I I do these um, community meetups and it's like the queer population. So there's people who work who've like worked at like Glisten, like the mm. gay lesbian youth um, organization for years. There's there's gender bending. There's trans people at the table. Um, we are lacking in people of color who want to get involved. It's called the Alliance for Safer Communities. But they meet with the cops once a month at the mm. cop station. It can be a little awkward. I'm there as an out sex worker, but we do pronouns as we go around the table. Um, and it's really cool because one of our chair members recently said, you know what, I'm now going by they, them. Mm. And I was like, damn, I never would have known that if you hadn't told everyone. Now yeah. I know. I feel like you just helped you adapt, me. Yeah. yeah, I can adapt to how I actually view you 
and stop thinking of you as like a woman. Yeah, because we're all gender bending all the time. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, John, you take better care of your face than I do. And you're a guy, <laughs> you know, like, that's not how we think in those terms. Yeah, I have like eight different creams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think being a strong female who, you know, runs a business, runs an organization, runs... Uh, you know, is kind of a boss. It's interesting because people have always said, oh, you're so bossy. And I'm like, you know, if I had a dick, you would say I was just a boss. Efficient. Right. They say you were efficient. Right. Or, you know, I would be a good boss. But, you know, being uh, in a a female identified body and being cis, that masculinity is seen as something that's wrong with me. And I'm so, and even like when there's, when there's male identified people, when there's a softness or a caring or a nurturing, then they're seen as soft. And it's just Mm -hmm. like, so we need to move into a more non-binary world where we each are elements of all of it. And that's what makes us better humans in general. Mm -hmm. I just want to say one last thing that's about me before we talk more about you. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a little bitter too, because I would love to be able to lean more into my masculine sides but I I make money based on how femininely appealing I can be to my audience which tends to be a lot of dudes Um, so I I have to perform femininity all the time and it really kind of bums me out Um, I wish that I could do you know I wore boys clothes and I went by a boys name for all of my until puberty in high school when I realized that being feminine can give you social capital because people pay attention to you in a different way but I do miss being able to present in my quote masculine ways so I just love that the pronouns is like an option Mm -hmm. for people to do that and you know Elle I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that please because you're buying into that cultural construct that that's what your your clients want I know and I mean maybe if you experiment and go out there in your boyness or in your masculinity you might be surprised by how much of a turn on that could be I I really needed to hear that because I've been thinking about it more I'm like as I get older like I do want to be able to live my truth you know before Mm -hmm. I, I miss that opportunity Oh, God, I'm going to cry. All right. So let's talk about <laughs> circumcision. <laughs> okay, no, I'm going to cry. Oh, God. I know. John, are you circumcised? No. Okay. I'm not. But, You're uh, not. I, I feel never, very strongly about the, the I never subject. thought about this. Yeah. I've never thought about your dick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have in many ways, but not that way. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you do feel really strongly about this. There's a whole movement around yeah. this. There's many movements around this. Yeah, I feel very strongly about it just running bodily autonomy. I believe mm. that people should absolutely be able to get circumcised once they turn 18. Um, and or whenever. And make that decision for themselves. Whenever they like advocate that they want that for themselves. Um, but I find that 18 tends to be a good time for for like you know when you can fully understand the impact of a long-term surgical procedure um what do you think about that dr dacker um yeah i agree with that i think 18 at the minimum cool you know when you could actually be able to give consent over your body yeah and when your parents wouldn't necessarily be influencing your your decisions as much hopefully by that age and they they still will they still can yeah absolutely (laughs) you know do you know like at your age group too about only 50 percent of oregonians are circumcised yeah really Mm -hmm. my son um is going to be 22 and i remember reading about 
that at his age group that really only 50% of his age group was actually wow. was circumcised in Oregon. Yeah. So we have one of the lower rates of circumcision. Yeah. yeah in the I was going to say, what is it for California? Do you know these by state? I, I don't. <laughs> I don't know what California is, I but I do know that the numbers for circumcision have been dropping uh, mm-hmm. on a national mm-hmm. level uh, as the years go by. Thank um, God. Where yeah, I would come nice. from in France, uh, you generally will only be circumcised if you are a uh, ethnic minority. Um, really? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, generally, the the people who tend to be of Arab origin or of Jewish origin within France are the the most of the the population that gets circumcised. Hmm. Um, the rest of France just simply doesn't do it. It's not a it's not a procedure that's offered routinely the same way that it, it is in the Americas and like and how it's sometimes even pushed in America oh, um, so as the standard. I remember when I was twenty one. And I was traveling around Central America and I met this boy and we got into this conversation. He was from Denmark and we got into this conversation about circumcision. It was really about female circumcision. And I was like, oh, God, no, you know, it's so awful and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And then he's like, yeah, you know, same with male. I was like, what? Wait, everybody circumcises boys. Like in my thinking at 21, yeah. which was quite a few years ago, uh, it was just the standard norm. And so the thought that like male circumcision was something that is also mutilating yeah. was a totally new concept for me at 21. Yeah. And then getting familiar with his uh, intact penis was such a lovely experience. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is so much nicer. There's so much more to do and play and explore <laughs> that I kind of became a convert to, to <laughs> cut <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the foreskin does contain about forty thousand uh, mm-hmm. nerve endings so that is a, a large removal of uh, of sensation when mm-hmm. you do circumcise i just want to make an acknowledgement that i like to try to say just to encourage my audience to think this way but i say penile circumcision or uh, vulva vaginal circumcision okay. mm-hmm. i don't know just because we don't want to totally lose acknowledgement of our trans audience it's mm-hmm. like I, yeah yeah I have a dick and I'm not a dude. Um, but yeah, I know it's hard. Language is limiting sometimes. Oh, and it is it is definitely a work in action. I know that I'm constantly trying to rewire those neural those neural yeah. pathways in my brain to it's like change. And well, queer wasn't a term that was on. used comfortably 30 years ago. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, it depends on the decade. So. Uh, yeah, constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, medicine is really binary. You know, yeah. everything we learn in medicine is so binary. So that changing language in medicine is, is, it's easier for me to change my language when I'm not thinking in medical terms. But when I'm thinking about like my doctor and my medicine, it's always like, okay, take a step back, go to like name the anatomy, not the gender and yeah. work from that perspective and it's it's it makes sense when you're teaching to when you're teaching to students in a way where you're like okay we acknowledge that bodies can be all different Mm -hmm. things and maybe a spleen looks different on a bunch of people but in general they tend to be like this so in general Mm -hmm. most males tend to be consider themselves men and have a dick but um yeah no i i imagine the code switching and the idea switching is kind of tricky sometimes Mm -hmm. yeah totally it's just like the language in the dressing room like we're all talking to each other and we refer to each other and you hear me refer to the girls i work with we're not girls we're grown-ass women like or people even non-binary individuals again but we're adults but we always say girls yeah and people will be like Mm -hmm. yeah girls or guys or whatever um so sometimes people will write to me or talk to me and I've noticed this in clients. They'll be like, oh, I'm dating a girl. I mean, woman. She's a woman. She's an adult. <laughs> I'm like, chill. I say girls. It's fine. <laughs> 
<laughs> language is hard. Um, no. So when, how was this evolution to you quitting circumcision? Well, you know, it, it came around because of consent and my work through consent and the ability for people to consent. In medicine, we are just, you know, it's an ingrained hierarchy. And in this hierarchy, people come into the office, they're there for whatever reasons, and there's this implicit and implied consent that we could tell them anything we want to, mm. we tell them what to do, and we touch their bodies in any way that we deem necessary. And um, I really started playing with that concept. And I've always had a really difficult time with circumcision anyway. It's always been this like, do I do it? Do I not do it? And I talked myself into doing it. And I, I circumcised babies for at least 20, oh God, 23 years. And the way I convinced myself to do it is like, these are people that are gonna cut, they're gonna cut their son, and I want to be able to do it in the most sacred fashion as possible. Hmm. So when I do a circumcision, I really approach the body in a sacred way. I'm very conscientious about the baby. I'm conscientious about their comfort, and I do it very, very fast. You said and you were. I remember you said you could rationalize doing it for so long because you were good at them. Right, mm -hmm. I was good at them, mm -hmm. and my approach was good at them. And I thought if this baby's going to have to suffer, then I wanted to know that it's suffering in the way that I could give it as much love as possible. Yeah. So that was my rationale for doing it up until I started really working with this uh, understanding of consent and was like, this totally goes against what I'm trying to do in every other aspect of my life and my my job. And I, I don't touch anybody without asking them permission anymore. Mm. And I don't, you know, when I do a pelvic exam on a woman, I asked permission to even touch her. And um, at first, my patients were like, what? Of course, like, why are you even asking me? And I'm like, no, I need to hear your yes, because I, I want you to know that you could say no. Yeah. Yeah. And and so how could I then just go to this baby who's, you know, less than two weeks old and totally change? I, I you know, I don't want to say mutilate, but that could be a feeling about it, like totally change their body and take away something from their body that could be healthy and pleasurable, mm -hmm. like who am I to do that? And who are the, why am I supporting these parents mm -hmm. to do something that they're doing because of their culture, their belief system, their values that doesn't really line up? A uh, mutual friend of ours, another doctor, um, let's call him Dr. Eric. You might know who I'm talking mm -hmm. about. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he had said that when he explained the potential risks to, and I'm paraphrasing, to um, parents of the patient, that the response he heard the most often was, the reason we're doing this is we want him to look like his dad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you ever get that? Oh, yeah. Jeez. What the fuck? Like when <laughs> are father like and son standing next to each other comparing dicks? And, and really, to look like your dad, you're going to probably be like 15 or 16 years old yeah. before you even would be like, huh, daddy looks a little different. And really, like our faces are different. Yeah. Yeah. Our bodies are different. So it, it, I know, but there's this fear and this necessary, it, it, I don't, it comes back down to masculinity and, and our feelings of what the penis represents for manhood and how could you get manhood that's not like the person who, who made you. Yeah. I had a conversation with my daughter in the tub. Um, we still take baths together and I've thought of it before. It's just so interesting. Like we have the same like format for body. So it's like, you know, I have a vulva, you have a vulva. Mm -hmm. I have nipples, you have nipples. 
Um, and she, she asked me why I had to get a boob surgery. Cause mm. I, I was like, careful, don't jump on me. You know, I can't pick you up for a while. I'm sorry. She'll give me a little pat on the boob. It's really nice. <laughs> but I explained to her and even this was weird. It was like the mental gymnastics I went through. Um, I was like, well, I didn't like the way my boobs looked. So I had a doctor put implants under my chest to make them look differently. And she was just like, okay, you know, mm-hmm. like it, yeah, no biggie. No big deal. I don't know what the world is. I'm developing like a schema. So if you present ideas to children yeah. very simply, no big deal. <laughs> I, I remember one time when my son came back from kindergarten. I don't know. He had his foreskin pulled up and I kind of saw him doing that. And I'm like, why are you doing that? He's like, well, I want to look like, you know, Casey or one of his friends that mm-hmm. he saw P yeah. who circumcised. And I'm like, Oh, let's have a little conversation about this. Like, it's not you know you might look different, but it's because you have this extra skin on you, and it's really protective, and it's good, and it you look like everybody else, and they just don't have that piece of skin. And he was very curious about like why would somebody take away that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, oh my goodness, what did you say? <laughs> you know, I just said you know some people because of their cultural beliefs okay. feel like it's not healthy to have it, but really it is healthy, and it gives you more lubrication. Yeah. Right. It allows you to have some extra sensation. Yeah. And if most parents knew how it actually is healthy, then they may leave more of it on. But a lot of parents don't realize that. Yeah. yeah. And so, and I, and I told him, you know, and when you're older, if you wanted to change that, that's up to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to give you the autonomy to do that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. He's totally. right now, you know, he's very much a, a pro, you know, intact penis per person. Yeah. <laughs> so very pro how, intact. How old was he about when you had that conversation? He was about five. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That sounds. So he's an intactivist now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's awesome. (laughs) Cool. Very much so. Well, that that kind of covers or touches on my next question I had, which was how has your parenting or your healing work informed each other? But it sounds like I mean you just yeah give simple, true answers, context appropriate. Mm And I've always been very open with my children, uh, especially around sexuality. Maybe I've just always had a comfort to talk about it. And I remember one time... um, we one of my tricks as my children were getting older was I would drive them and they would be in the back seat of the car and I would because you know they had to sit in the back and I could look at them through the rear view mirror but I could they couldn't see my face Mm -hmm. so I would bring up conversations during that time so they were kind of they had to be in an an audience and if they were uncomfortable they didn't have to look at me and yet they were listening to what I said so I I began talking about self-pleasure in this way and to both of my children and I you know would talk about how self-pleasuring and rubbing yourself is a really normal thing and that you know there'll be a certain age when you're going to have something come out of your you know your genitalia and it doesn't mean that it's broken because I heard a lot of people tell me, oh my God, the first time I had a, an ejaculation, I felt like I broke something. It was oh so my scary. Oh my God. So wow. I was like, it doesn't mean it's broken. That's super normal. And you're, you know, so I would do a lot of sex education f- with my children in the car. <laughs> I wish I'd had that because like me at the age of like, I don't know, 12, 13 was, I remember this. I was on Yahoo Answers, which is of course where you want to get all your sex <laughs> info. Um, you know, that's that's the real material there. I was like, well, I've never come, but why, why can't I come? And 
of course, like no one, even like within elementary school, had had the discussion of like, you know, the, the amount of time that it takes for a boy to be able to, and it varies per person, mm-hmm. of course. Um, but to have like, you know, semen and, uh, exit the penis. And I was just like, and I got all these replies and like, it was funny. I, I distinctly only remember one, but it was, uh, consider yourself lucky. You can come without having to clean up. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was oh. like, oh, so it's just the same thing, but with liquid, like interesting. <laughs> that rules. Well, it's kind of like kids, little kids, their feet don't start to stink until they're like, I don't know, five or something. Mm-hmm. Like my kid's feet. I'm like, all right, things are changing. <laughs> <laughs> little baby smells. Yeah. So I've always been very open with my children and I, I don't, sometimes they're like you're too open I don't need to know everything you don't need to teach my friends everything when they come over (laughs) (laughs) I'm like the I do I do they need to understand consent and they need to understand what they need to talk about because I bet you their parents aren't doing that and I want them to know that they have a resource if they have questions that's That's wonderful I love that you're a great resource so uh, we're going to take a break but look up Dr. Eveline at evelinedacker.com we'll be right back We know that masturbation is one of the healthiest ways we can remind ourselves that we are worthy and capable of pleasure, which is why I'm excited to tell you about Unbound, a women-founded and run startup dedicated to making design-centric vibrators that are body-safe and affordable, starting at $18. You'll get 10% off your order of $35 or more at unboundbabes.com with the code STRANGEBEDFELLOWS. Visit Unbound Babes to view their full line of pleasure products. Are you a Portland area sex worker seeking a judgment-free therapy provider? Margaret King is a trauma-informed and sex-positive mental health counselor serving kinky and swerking peoples in the Portland metro area. Attunement Psychotherapy offers clients a variety of creative interventions to assist in their sharing process, including transpersonal perspectives, somatic awareness, art making, and dream work. Contact attunementpsychotherapy.com or call 971-271-0633 to learn more about scheduling an appointment in her Southeast office. Designed by Dallas Dominatrix Mistress Petra Hunter, the Sissy Kit provides all-inclusive training packages designed exclusively for sissies. Whether you're a beginner sissy or a full-blown sissy slut, these kits are perfect for those of you looking to spice up your play. The kits are a great fit for those new to the lifestyle or those too nervous to visit a dominatrix. Kits are shipped worldwide with flat rate shipping and purchases are billed and shipped discreetly. To get started, visit thesissykit.com. Welcome back to Strange Bedfellows podcast. Joining us is Dr. Eveline Dacker. You have L. Hello. Hi, John. Hey. Hey. We're going to go right to some listener questions. So we received this question. I love my boyfriend to death, but unfortunately his past partners hated oral sex and helped create a mindset that women don't like to receive it. We've had conversations, playful and serious, about me guiding and teaching him to get him to be more confident and comfortable, which he says he's 100% on board for. Do you have any ideas about language or moves to try to move that process along? Or any toys that provide similar sensations in the meantime. I wonder how old they are. Sometimes when I get questions, I'm like, I need more information. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have an idea. Yes. So I had a similar issue with one of my partners once where I wasn't getting the pleasure I wanted from them. And so what we did is we started by kissing. And 
we kind of explored different ways of kissing the mouth. Mm. And in that learning to read each other's body language while kissing and being really intentional in that. And then we moved to oral where I said, okay, now you're doing the same thing, but you're doing it on my vulva. Yes, yeah. That's so that's really and cool. Like transference. Of right. And so you see how I moan and I move my body when I'm kissing. And so pick up on that and be aware of it. Because I think that 90% of good sexual interaction between people is being aware of each other. Mm. The more that they could pick up on your pleasure, the more empowering it is for the giver. Mm -hmm. And the more the giver feels empowered, the more that they could give pleasure. Mm -hmm. So it's a two way street. And it's not so much about, oh, no, move your tongue here or this. But it's also about the receiver being able to give really clear signals to their partner of like, yes, Mm -hmm. yes, versus like silence and uh, move your hand to your left or your tongue down. You know, it's like, oh, yes. Oh, mm, you know. And move more slowly, too. Mm -hmm. That's another thing. Like, Mm -hmm. I hear it all the time from sex partners or customers. Um, Like, I give way slower lap dances than than the majority of my peers that I witnessed. You know, I don't know what other kind of providers do as far as touch, but like if I'm bouncing around, like, first of all, I want to eat up the time, you know, like I'm going to run out of (laughs) shit to do if I'm moving too fast. So it's the same thing with sex. Like you don't need to bust out like all your moves in a minute. Please don't. Yeah. Yeah. Like you'll probably scare someone. (laughs) Yeah. Well, even like just eye gazing, you know, like, Oh, slow works so much better for everything. And, and even, you know, with the techniques and all that of what you do when you uh, are performing cunnilingus, I, that becomes so irrelevant because every single person wants something different. Even the same person could want something different mm-hmm. in different days. Mm-hmm. So it's about learning the person's body mm-hmm. and becoming aware. And I think kissing, starting off with a kiss is a really nice place to start. I think that's a great idea. (laughs) One more before we move to the next. I want to comment. I had a sex partner once that I saw for several years and I noticed he always went down on me like in the same way. (laughs) And finally, one time I think I I was a lot like less comfortable then, but I said, can you, and I don't even remember what I asked him to do, but he's like, oh, I thought you only liked it the other way. And I was like, they're, oh god you are thinking in those terms like this is the way <laughs> l likes her pussy <laughs> like no it's go it's so dependent on context well you yeah. know i think that our sex education is so lacking in this in our country oh, yeah. and most of pe- uh, people growing up now their sex education is through pornography yeah. and they don't teach that body awareness they don't teach communication and so much of good sexiness between two humans is really communication and awareness yeah and there's that's a hard thing to learn and when you're young and you're uncomfortable and it's you know it takes a while yeah Mm -hmm. definitely i love that all right next one i sometimes experience cramping after orgasm even without penetration it can definitely take the fun out of sex and masturbation what's up with that this is someone who they're talking about their pussy their vagina it's from a cis woman um I wonder how old she is and if she's on birth control pills. Yeah. I feel like I've heard this. I had a lover friend and 
we also worked together for a number of years. So you know how when you have those relationships, you can hear about other people, mm-hmm. like the sex they're having with other people when they tell mm-hmm. you. Yeah. So she said that she just, after she has some really good orgasms, it's just, she, that's just mm-hmm. normal for her. She just has cramps. That's not unusual because, again, your uterus is a muscle. It, the muscle is, you know, goes down to your your vagina as your cervix, and then it's all connected. So if you end up having an orgasm, even if it's like a G-spot stimulated orgasm, it sends nerves to all of your uterus, so it could spasm. And it, for some people, the way they're wired, it could be like a cramp, like a menstrual cramp, because hmm. you're actually doing that. You're actually having these contractions of your uterus. Hmm. Interesting. Taking some ibuprofen maybe beforehand could be helpful. Ooh. Maybe massaging the area before or after. Mm, you know, sometimes, and it could be due to like where you're at in your cycle. Yeah. It, because during, like right around your period, you have more blood flow to that area. So okay. it's more engorged. So if you have a orgasm during that time, you could have these, you know, contractions and cause that kind of menstrual like cramping. Yeah. Ibuprofen, heat, and just, you know... Hmm. recognizing that it'll probably go away as you as your age changes it's not going to last forever interesting okay i think that happens more with younger people huh interesting i remember definitely when i was at the end of um my pregnancy i had gone and i knew when i conceived so i was 42 and a half weeks Mm. along when she finally got cut from my loins um after three days in labor so um this nine pound fucking baby uh i masturbated all the time i was so uncomfortable but i was Mm -hmm. like well i might as well try to feel good Mm -hmm. and i know that this can supposedly induce labor because the contractions are happening (laughs) like is that a thing yeah okay good i often say well you know what really helps is semen because there's prostaglandin and semen and that actually softens the the mute the cervix and so I often used to say, you know what, we'll put it in there, we'll help get it out. Oh my God. And you know what my midwife told me, and she said this to me in, after my husband was not in the room, my husband at the time, she's like, you know, we, we say this without the men present, but it actually helps better if you swallow the semen. <laughs> so start sucking those dicks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, thank you for not saying that in front of him because that is pressure. <laughs> also, I don't think I could have handled that when I was pregnant. Oh no, I did. Gaggy. I knew too. And I, I was like, all right, babe, guess what? Guess what? Guess what you get to have after no- months of not having it. <laughs> oh yeah. Good times. He's a nice man. We made a good baby. It's all good. Uh, So here, next one. John, can you read number three? Sure. So here's a question we got. I've heard that taking antibiotics will make my oral contraceptive not work at preventing pregnancy. Now, I'm on Nexplanon. Does my hormonal birth control work when I'm on antibiotics? Yes. Because Nexplanon is actually the insertable, long-acting contraceptive, and so it goes in your arm, Mm -hmm. and it's good for three years, and it's probably the most, um, it provides the most contraception than all of them. I'm forgetting the word right now. Per like dose? No, per like it is equal to getting a tubal ligation. Wow. Yeah. Like the most effective. It, yes, it's the most effective form wow. of birth control. Because you don't have to remember to take it. It's there and it's not in your uterus because there is a failure rate with IUDs. The downside of it is that it causes prolonged bleeding in some women. 
some people on it. Like some women just spot and spot and spot and spot and they just can't handle it. So, but if it wasn't for that, it is. And it's not changed by oral, it's not changed by antibiotics because it's only progesterone. The ones that are changed are the ones that are estrogen. And so combination oral birth control pills, patches, and uh, the NuvaRing. So if everyone didn't hear that correctly, if you're on those last three and you're also prescribed antibiotics, it's going to make your birth control it could. It, it could. could. I it know could. someone who it happened to her. <laughs> right. It could make your birth control a lot less effective. There's an increased rate of possible ovulation. It's not all antibiotics and it's not all forms of oral contraceptions, but most, almost all the combination, the ones that use estrogen and progesterone. And if that's the case, you know, using uh, barriers such as the Condoms. The, the condoms, the receptive condoms, or the insertable condoms. So either one of those. Okay, cool. This is wonderful. Yeah. I actually, um, so the person who wrote in with that question, I know this person, and they won't mind me saying this because they're anonymous, but I know that they also, after having the next blood on put in, they were bleeding for like two months straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and sometimes it goes away. So I often encourage people like, just wait a little bit because it's really, really effective and you're not going to get pregnant on it. Yeah. Awesome. All right, let's see one more before we take our next break. Ooh, I identify with this one somewhat. I've never been able to self-lubricate slash get wet, regardless of how mentally turned on I am. Arousal non-concordance? Question mark, she says. (laughs) Should this be of concern or an indication of larger health issue? So me, my comment is I'm just a dry person, like dry skin, dry humor, dry pussy. Like (laughs) it's, you know, my, my kid has dry skin too. So, but anyway, so when I smoke a lot of cannabis, um, it makes it even worse for me. Mm -hmm. So I am such a a lube proponent and I also Mm -hmm. keep water like, hello, everywhere all the time next to the bed. Um, that's just how I am. Yeah. So what do you think, doctor? Oh, it is a normal thing. It's almost like, again, we judge our sexuality based on these silly body functions. Like, it's the same thing with men who have trouble staying erect or getting erect. And it doesn't mean they're any less sexual or they're they're getting any less pleasure. And some of us think like, oh, we have to get wet because that shows that we're aroused. Mm-hmm. And there is discordance. Some people are drier. Some people don't have the same... Uh, glands that produce the same amount of lubricant i mean some women squirt and some women don't mm-hmm. and, and i can squirt sometimes i'll yeah. say that but it's yeah and i ne- i think i've have one time and you know i was like when i did i'm like oh that wasn't any better than all my other orgasms <laughs> right and it's a lot less messy so. <laughs> <laughs> right but you know lubricant is really really important for everybody i don't care if you're really wet um i actually give lubricant out at all of my well woman visits because it costs is less trauma to the vagina, less risk, and less trauma means less infections, less change in your pH. Mm-hmm. Sometimes using condoms, depending or or even sperm, can cause changes in your pH. Oof. So when you use a good lubricant, it can help you. It's it's good for pussies. So even if I could get really wet, I almost always have my Uber Lube right next to me and mm-hmm. ready to use because. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's my friend. Well, and we're also not having sex just to reproduce. So it's mm-hmm. not like we're fucking, we're like penis and vagina for five minutes. Like right. we're, people are creative. You know, we like to play. We like to fantasize. So a 40 minute hour session, like 
good God, who right. would be, some people can, but I most mean, of us can't be wet that whole time. No. Or and I, I actually had this uh, person who told me the story of how, you know, she was brought up Catholic and her, and her spouse was brought up Catholic and they dated for like four years and finally they got married and they're like going on their wedding night and it was terrible. It was like painful Oof. and she didn't know about lube because they never had good sex education and it wasn't until after the birth of her second child that somebody mentioned lubricant. Oh, oh my and God. And she found lubricant and was like, oh my God, sex is so much better now. Oh, so like I give lubricant to teenagers. Yeah. Yes. I like, I teach everybody that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're wet or not. I teach men that, you know, if their partner's not wet, it's not a reflection on them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like... It's within your body. Mm-hmm. I love that also the person asking this question mentioned arousal non-concordance. And we talk mm-hmm. about this in other episodes. So go look up arousal non-concordance mm-hmm. and look up Dr. Emily Nagoski because mm-hmm. she wrote a ton about that. Um, yeah, come as you are. She talks about that. Come as book. you are. Yeah. One more tiny quick question before we take a break because something you said brought up this question to me. Um, could a copper IUD in theory change the, the changes the pH? So could I have a friend who said that she feels like she got a bunch of infections due to her copper IUD? You know, yes, yes, it could. Anything that is in your vagina and uterus that's sticking out into your vagina could change your pH. Okay. I think there might be a little bit less with the copper because copper could actually be good for bacteria, but... Really? Um, yeah, you know how people sometimes wear copper bracelets? Yeah. and that's why hmm. uh, a lot of door handles are made from copper. Yeah. So the, the door huh. handle will be antibacterial naturally because nice. it destroys bacteria. But so. again, it's in it's within your uterus. Mm. And uh, the marina, the one that has progesterone, could also shift your, your floor and your pH. And, you know, your partner's sperm could shift your floor and your pH and what you're eating could do. I mean, it's so mm-hmm. multifactorial mm-hmm. that if somebody is having trouble with their IUD, regardless, or anything yeah you know mm-hmm. lubes could change it that's why it's really important to get a healthy lube yeah mm-hmm. all right cool don't get ky from thank the supermarket you. thank you thank <laughs> the you best, I'm, I'm gonna do a little plug here but you know the best place to get good lubricant is at a knowledgeable place like shebop where there's a bunch of different things you could try and if and, you don't live in portland do you know of anybody yeah. online or just any brand in you general know, you know, well, like. I like Uber Lube, which is a silicone lube. You just can't use it on silicone toys. Mm-hmm. I just put a dildo, I put a barrier over my silicone toys and then use it. Mm-hmm. And um, something s- slick is like a better water-based one. A good clean love is a really good water-based one that's good for pHs. But, you know, it really is person-dependent and body-dependent on what you like. All right. Well, everybody, you heard it there first (laughs) or maybe not first but we're gonna take a break right now have you ever wanted to make a replica of your favorite penis or vulva clone a willy and clone a pussy allow anyone to make an exact replica of a penis or vulva into a functioning sex toy at home these diy molding kits are ethically sourced and hand assembled in portland oregon and all materials are 100 percent body safe Follow Clona Willy on social media at Clona Willy Kit on Instagram and Clona Willy on Twitter. Use promo code SBPDX for 20% off clonawilly.com. Attention service and sex industry workers. 
Seeking Space Yoga is dedicated to providing a holistic option for after your weekend shift at 3am on Saturdays and 4am on Sundays. These special Sin Yin classes are meant to help you wind down and improve overall health. Need a little motivation? Your first Sin Yin class is free, and they offer 15% on all memberships and packages for those in the industry. Visit SeekingSpaceYoga.com or download the Seeking Space Yoga app for more information and to check out other industry-friendly class times. The Institute for Sex Education and Enlightenment offers online and live training and certification for sex education and sex therapy. If you've ever dreamed of becoming a certified sex educator or a therapist prepared for clients with sexuality concerns, IC will give you the training and the credentials you need with classes online and right in Portland. Visit instituteforsexuality.com and use the code STRANGEBEDFELLOWS to get $10 off of your first webinar or class, or email info at instituteforsexuality.com to ask about our certification programs. They're available. They're yeah. easily available. And so, and it depends on what you like. Like, it depends on how you're playing. Some people yeah. like more water-based for anal play because yeah. it's like, cushionier yeah but then it dries out more it, and you have so, to reapply constantly right or you just keep all water. this in the episode okay. yeah welcome yeah. back yeah this is strange bedfellows keep going um, let's talk more so about we're talking lube. about lube talking yeah. about lube any and it's it's too bad we don't know like early on if someone's gay but like at birth there should just be a tote bag filled with lube for like all gay men <laughs> there should be a tote bag filled with lube good lube and all, all for everybody oh that's so true actually yeah but uh but yeah no like i've my sex life went from like zero to 100 upon like the discovery of lube and i was like yeah it's not happening without it in the future like nope no people <laughs> used to get really i'm sure this happens still but people would get offended i worked four years as a porn porn shop clerk and people get offended when i'm like hey would you like any lube yeah, yeah. Oh, check out our lube like i don't need that well again and it's because of our view of what se good sex is and and like you as a female body person have to be wet to show your partner that they're they're good and they're doing the right job and that's just really unfair mm -hmm. and what one of the things we were talking about with lube is that water-based lube is cushionier so a lot of people prefer that for anal play yeah um versus silicone which is thinner but silicone stays in place whereas water based lube dries up and you have to either reapply water you could do it with saliva yeah. you could just do it by reapplying you know you have a spray bottle i mean you could do it but it kind <gasps> of spray bottle of lube next to, oh my god you know, by the bed um, Can you oil oil could be good too but it breaks down latex uh, Condom. condoms yeah. so you, you it's experimenting and i really have people stay away from ky from astroglide uh, good clean love is one that you could probably find in a supermarket but really buy little packets try or go on and buy little packets and try different things out uber lube is totally 100 percent pure so it is the best one for pussies i'm like hmm. it makes pussies happy so two questions so first of all where would you find uh, uber lube and then second of all if you had to shop at say a walgreens or a rite aid what would you recommend mm. if, out of their available options? What about Slickwood? Slickwood is an, is yeah. available at like Walmart. Is it? Yeah. So yeah. Slick. And then what I would say is buy a water-based one and buy a silicone one and, and really try them both out and mm -hmm. see what works for you. Yeah. Uber Lube is a little harder to find. You could only really find it 
uh, online. I yeah. know they sell it on Amazon and at a lot of sex stores, but it's not available like in supermarkets. It's also available in doctor's offices, so I sell it in my practice. Yeah. Okay, good to know. Um, so let's talk about there is a lawsuit against some opioid manufacturers. Mm. Um, Purdue Pharma, mm -hmm. maker of OxyContin, <laughs> settles opioids lawsuit in Oklahoma. This happened uh, March of this year. So the maker of OxyContin and the company's controlling family agreed to pay $270 million oh. whoa, in a deal announced Tuesday with the state of Oklahoma to settle allegations they helped set off the nation's deadly opioid crisis with their aggressive marketing of the powerful painkiller. So real quick, I worked in a pharmacy in high school. I was a clerk. Uh, my sister, my younger sister, I ended up getting her clerk job, and then she's now a pharmacy tech. So these are the people that process the orders. And I remember when our small village uh, family-run pharmacy started processing Internet orders for OxyContin. And so what this was, and we all knew it was a fucking sham, yeah. what this was was a doctor, someone overseas, would online approve anyone's request for the pain pill oh my God. and we were just shipping it we got raided we got fucking raided by the dea one day like wow. guns out oh yeah everyone on the floor wow. because it was totally illegal and so i don't know whatever happened with the the ownership of that pharmacy you know i was in high school and i stopped working that job and anyway um that but that was lightly traumatic. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, I was in the back when it happened and I thought, huh, finally happened. But <laughs> but but I would I would literally stand at a counter for hours and it was just like there was we upped our hiring when this happened. OK, yeah. we had three people, three teenagers, probably young adults, um, and we're just putting these bags into these things and sealing them and throwing them like there's no reason and some of our orders i mean they were to all over in the country but some of our orders were like a shitload of pills like as many as you could possibly get yeah and we're like we know this is so anyway when i read this i was like aha finally yeah i mean i was a new doctor when oxycontin came out in the market and i was working at a community clinic so a lot of like homeless uh people who didn't have access to care migrants you know that that was my patient population back then I loved it but I remember the sales rep coming in and being like yeah this is better than short acting opiates because it causes decreased risk of addiction because it's longer acting and I remember like I never felt comfortable writing prescriptions for opiates I had too many friends that were heroin addicts yeah. growing up so it wasn't like Mm -hmm. my thing but I remember like other doctors being like oh we got to change all of our patients to oxycontin because there's less risk of and I was like wait it doesn't make sense if it's longer acting wouldn't there be an increased risk of addiction you know <laughs> and then of course patients break them and so it I, I remember being really uncomfortable with the whole concept yeah. of it but that was absolutely the story they told us and I think it's sometimes the story that is still being told around other drugs as well so I'm prescribed a long acting form of benzodiazepine called mm -hmm. clonopin mm -hmm. uh, versus mm -hmm. Xanax, which only lasts mm -hmm. about right. four hours, two to four hours. Um, and the clonopin lasts eight to 16 hours, mm -hmm. depending on like how long it takes to get out of your system, but a minimum of eight. Mm -hmm. um, and I was prescribed this also um, in the theory that it would be like less addictive than Xanax. Um, but I'm like, but it lasts longer. And I had the same experience <laughs> with Adderall. Uh, my doctors would not prescribe me instant release Adderall um, after once they found out that I smoked weed, because I was like, oh, I can tell my doctor. They'll be okay with it. They'll appreciate me being honest with them. This was back when I was a teenager. So I was like, you were 17. also in California. Yeah, in California before it was legal. 
Um, and then, so I was told like, okay, well, now that we know that you're an addict, I was like, I smoke weed a couple times a week, like, um, that we have to put you on Adderall extended release only. And I'm like, wait, so instead of it lasting four hours, my Adderall is now going to last eight. And this is supposed to help me like not be addicted to it. And I became extremely addicted to Adderall and I had to myself quit cold turkey and like against my doctor's orders who was like, no, you need to keep taking this on a regular basis. And um, we have such a skewed view of drug use as physicians. It's almost like, sure, we'll prescribe you opiates. We'll prescribe you stimulants. We'll prescribe you benzodiazepines. But oh, my God, you smoke weed or you tried psilocybin a year ago. I, I have I have a friend who got knocked off of a surgery list because she admitted to trying psilocybin over like last August. Shrooms? Yeah, mushrooms last August. And they're like, oh, you have to show us that you're addiction free. I mean, like we use this language where I'm sorry, I've never met anybody who's addicted to any to to mushrooms. I mean, it's not something you do. Like physiologically, just we can talk about the psychology of it separately, but physiologically hallucinogenics you're much less likely to get any sort of like even addictive reaction to it. Um, I know that my first reaction to doing LSD was like, okay, I'm going to wait a year and do it again. Right. I mean, people aren't like (laughs) jumping to do that. But stimulants and benzos, I mean, they are addictive. Extremely addictive. And so, but... I don't know. Maybe it's because we have this God complex as physicians. Mm. So we think if we write it, then it's going to be okay. Yeah. But mm-hmm. things that you make your own decision and autonomy around, no, that's yeah. not okay because you don't know as much. Yeah. So the other article, <laughs> that's so funny. I found a different article and it's actually about a different uh, company. So there's a Vox piece too. Uh, this came out a month later. So in April of 2019, for the first time, the feds criminally charged a pharma distributor for the opioid epidemic. So this is a different group, mm-hmm. actually. It's Rochester Drug Cooperative faces charges to c- for conspiring to distribute drugs and defrauding the federal government after the company didn't report thousands of suspicious orders of opioids, mm-hmm. including oxycodone and fentanyl. This is the sixth largest distributor in the U.S. Wow. That's crazy. That's amazing. So. <laughs> well, you don't have to look far to see where the crisis is coming from. Then. Yeah, no shit. God, I <laughs> I still chuckle at my old job. That was so funny. Um, <laughs> and you know what? This is another thing. This is why I don't trust. I'm sorry. I don't trust a lot of doctors because anything can be prescribed and almost anything can be approved by the FDA, depending who's in charge at the FDA. Um Sometimes and, even the things I ask for when I receive them, I'm like a little bit surprised um, if I'm being honest about my own my own prescription. So I'm on four milligrams of Klonopin a day, mm-hmm. which is probably that's a pretty lot. high. Yeah, yeah, that's actually the highest legal dosage that you can give a person in California without it being coming under scrutiny from the board. Wow. Um, so which is kind of interesting. And I was told by one of my doctors, not my current one, but the one before that, because uh, back when I was flying down between the Bay Area and Portland a lot, I had a doctor who was in the Bay Area, but he knew that I was spending a lot of time in Portland. Well, you were meeting him in person. Yeah, I was meeting yeah, him in person. And, um, and he told me, actually, if you'd like to have a higher dosage of benzodiazepines, go to Oregon because it's easier in other states to prescribe above four milligrams. But California has a law specifically limiting the roof of that at four milligrams a day and i was just like well first of all that's an interesting thing that you would tell me that (laughs) and like but like not be like 
there's a reason for it. <laughs> um, I don't know, but uh, but I, it definitely was interesting. But my experiences with doctors have gotten more and more positive as I've been able mm. to communicate more. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially like when I when I find like doctors that I I actually look for a doctor now though, instead of rather like than just you know going to the first one that I can find that fits my insurance. You know, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people don't have that option, but I'm I'm lucky that I do, and uh, I can kind of like doctor shop around in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I've also seen so many things that we used to sell a shitload of in the pharmacy back in 2004-ish when I worked there. I've seen these things be pulled for giving people cancer or causing issue because um, there's not like, like so, if a drug is created and they're like, this seems fine and then they release it, but there's no longitudinal studies of yeah. how these drugs impact people. So in like 40 for, years, it might give you some rare form of or cancer. Or 10 years or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, well, moving on to, uh, so gynecology. Mm. <laughs> are you familiar with uh j marion sims i'm not okay so the father of gynecology um first of oh, all the sims, yeah. this mm-hmm. one yeah mm-hmm. so there's mm-hmm. a great book it's called black on both sides it mm-hmm. was written by a person called c riley snorton mm-hmm. and it talks about black trans racial identity but mm-hmm. the book starts out talking about how the father of gynecology mm-hmm. did surgery experiments on chattel slave women mm-hmm. without anesthesia Oh, shit. In their reproductive areas. Oh, is this the guy whose statue got taken down recently? Yes. Mm-hmm. So J. Marion Sims, mm-hmm. the gynecologist who experimented on slaves. So he was a Confederate supporter during, before and during and after. So he was a gynecologist. His A lot of his research was on vesicovaginal fistulas. Okay. So uh-huh. when women or when people with vaginas experience a shitload of rape and then traumatic childbirth, it breaks down the wall right between the bladder and the vagina, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so he was trying to fix that and who he experimented on was slaves. Um, and who the benefit of the medicine was for was typically other affluent white women. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about gynecology having some really fucked up roots, that's a big part of it. And his statue was recently removed mm-hmm. where it had stood for about a hundred years in New York. Damn. So Luce, I know calling him the father of gynecology. <laughs> yeah. What a, what there, a there misnomer. Is, <laughs> well, but you know, it again, it feeds into our patriarchal culture. Yeah. Like the father, you know, the daddy yeah. figure. You would expect the there to be a mother of gynecology. Mm-hmm. Well, and there is. I mean, the best gynecology doesn't come from doctors, you know. It comes from <laughs> midwives and nurse practitioners and yeah. sex educators. And <laughs> so he apparently, um, he helped invent the modern speculum. Yes. Um, but there was three women who are named in many of his studies. Their names were their slave names were Lucy, Anarcha, and Betsy. So Anarcha, uh, he some places say thirty, some say up to forty performed procedures on her. And wow. when the war broke out, he was having a hard time getting funding existing in the South, and just um, you know he had money coming from both sides and at some point the north and the south his associates were like hey dude pick a side but he went to Europe and he practiced over there for a while mm. um, so it's kind of fucked up because for a while historians were naming Anarcha as the mother of modern gynecology mm. as if she was able to have a hand and a choice in this mm-hmm. yeah 
Um, and when we talk about today, not only is the access more difficult for people who tend to be black, mm -hmm. um, but there's a history of distrust of the medical community for reasons such as this. Oh, God. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that and the syphilis study. And oh, the, so, yes. Yeah. Mention the syphilis, syphilis study, please. You're talking about Tuskegee? Yes, Tuskegee. Yeah, where they allowed all uh, a group of African black men to not be treated for syphilis. And this was on purpose so they could see the long-term effects of syphilis. A deadly disease, right. by the it's way. Deadly and it causes dementia and blindness and uh, mostly kind of mental health issues. And also it's very transmittable too. Right. But, you know, uh, black men black, transmitting yeah. it to black women. Right. It's, you know, yeah. again, it's that whole idea of disposable yeah. culture and... Yeah, yeah, so it's kind of messed up. So I did want to just acknowledge that because like our institutions utterly as valuable as they are can be so flawed. And we've talked about a lot of this in episode, you know, but there's people like you who are doing great work to yeah. elevate them. You're holding up a mirror to it, which is really well, nice. I, you know, I really believe that there needs to be a big shift in medicine in general. Like so much of what we do is about denial and disease and dysfunction. You know, when we think about sexuality in medicine, we think of erectile dysfunction or low libido or <laughs> vaginal dryness, but we yeah. don't, we our perspective is really, I feel, is really twisted. And we have to have much more of a perspective that's on pleasure. Yeah. And if we start becoming more inclusive of pleasure in healthcare, we're going to start treating the whole human mm -hmm. versus just the dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And part of my work in general is acknowledging how much power and how much healing is in pleasure. I mean, we give somebody a benzodiazepine or an opiate or an antidepressant or even a cholesterol medication. What we're doing is we're trying to keep pleasure in their life, but we're doing it in a way that's like, oh, you have too much of this. So I'm going to give you a pill to take away yeah. that too much versus like, oh, we're going to give you something that will help encourage your pleasure yeah. and your quality of life. And um, mm -hmm. and that's a lot about where my work around sexuality comes from. Yeah. It really comes from trying to see have a holistic... See the cause rather than treat the symptoms. Right. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and to see how important all of it is in the human. And sexuality is one of these beautiful gifts that we're given as human beings. Yeah. And we don't even have to be sexual with anybody or even within ourselves. Like I think I include the whole spectrum from asexual to allosexual yeah. in terms of like, we all have that energetic within us. And if we elevate that and talk about pleasure and actually start chipping away rather than giving all these narcotics or medications that just cause more problems. Yeah. You know, one last thing, uh, before we go to our after show, can we talk about, um, in our after show, uh, John Harvey Kellogg? Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Oh, no. Oh, that's right. John was looking up the Sex Positive Portland website earlier, and it looks like there's some kind of levels to mm -hmm. involvement. Can you mm -hmm. explain that briefly? Yeah. So Sex Positive Portland, we have a, I don't want to call it a pyramid. It's a level system. So our first level is really getting into the same language and expectations and modes of behavior. So we teach a lot about consent a lot about language, a lot about sovereignty, and how 
how really we're teaching people to take ownership for what they want and being able to hear no, being able to say no, saying yes in a consensual manner, as well as teaching this model of communication before you actually play with anybody, which is stars. You mentioned that earlier. Mm -hmm. And that's make time for the talk mm -hmm. dot. Calm, yeah. Calm. So that's like the first level. And then the second level is where we go into more touch positive uh, events. So some of those are like cuddles, which once you take all these basic classes, you could attend cuddles. And that just mm -hmm. that's non sexual, that's non sensual, but it's just touch positive. Yeah. So that's like our level two. And sometimes there's dances and things. But again, sexuality is kind of moved off the table. Our level three uh, events are more sensual. So it's about moving sexual energy in a, in a sensual way where we take orgasm as the end point off of the table. Right. So we teach this whole new way of relating to sexuality by not making it about orgasm, not making it about male orgasm, and learning to use our body in all these different aspects. And to get to that level, you kind of have to go to some events under the guidance of a sponsor, another person who could make sure that you're able to do your stars talk, able to say no, able to say yes, that you understand consent and that you could be a good community member. Yeah. And then the top level is level four. It really is more of a level where you are, um, you could move sexual energy because that means that you can then in these events, you can have orgasms or sometimes orgasms is that's part of it or it may not be part of it. But it really is more that you've reached that echelon in the community where you're actually giving back, you're volunteering, you're yeah. known by everybody. And it's so the levels are not just they're not about like, hey, how far can I go? And could yeah. I like hook up? It's more about being a community member and building like an understanding and trust. Yeah. 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 Some people say it's too much. Oh, God, I don't have to do that. And, you know, for some it is. But I think for a majority of person, people, it really works well. Yeah. Good. And that's, that's awesome. a great screening process for participants. Oh, yes. Yes. So thank you so much, Dr. Eveline Dacker. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah. you're welcome. We're going to talk a little bit in our after show about what a weirdo the guy was who invented cornflakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. He was fucked up. Uh, yeah. We're all a little fucked up, but it's how do we use that fucked up? Um, to make the world a better place or not uh <laughs> join us on instagram strange bedfellows pdx and be sure to write us for feedback or if you have any sex questions any kind of questions pillow talk at strange bedfellows pdx.com until next time until next time okay bye thank you for listening to strange bedfellows podcast to find behind the scenes photos bonus clips and journals from your guests and hosts Type www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash strange bedfellows and join for only $1. Find us online at strangebedfellowspdx.com and Instagram at strangebedfellowspdx. You can find me, L Stanger, on stripperwriter.com and Instagram as L Stanger. Write your hate mail or sex and relationship questions to pillowtalk at strangebedfellowspdx.com and find me, John, on Instagram at metric.cafe. Please rate and review our show on your favorite listening app. Thanks for supporting sex education and freedom of expression.